0: You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, Assault Studios production. Leaving education and entering the workforce can be difficult, but it helps if you have the support, knowledge and guidance of a mentor. That's what happened for Cam Truan. When his mentor put his name forward for an assistant engineer role at a recording studio. 6 years later and many lessons learned, Cam was ready to seek out other opportunities and became a freelance sound engineer. It was a brave move, but one that's paid off. Now based in LA, Cam jets around the world with electronic music act Rufus deSol. In this episode, Cam explains how we got this awesome opportunity and how you might be able to do the same. Cam, we've just had a chat about your education. You got to the end of it. You got high distinctions for absolutely everything, didn't you? <laughs> uh, I no think comment? That's what we said, yeah. <laughs> pretty close. Pretty close. What's your first career opportunity?
1: My first career opportunity was I managed to land an assistant engineer role at a recording studio in East St or Balaclava called Woodstock Studios. Uh, so I'd mentioned that my mentor at the time had put me forward. The studio owner at the time was had gone to the school uh, to the university and had you know kind of advertised it or posted it there with the lecturers and said, do you, know, do you have any competent assistants that would be interested in working at the studio? And they put me forward. Which was uh, so incredibly, I think I kind of owe everything to that. Managed to get that interview with the studio owner, to which we um, sat in the studio behind the big Neve mixing desk. It was the best best interview I'd ever had for a job. I was surrounded by all this amazing recording gear in this incredible recording studio, and I remember we talked. We just sat there and we talked for like an hour and a half, and we just talked about music. You obviously got along then. We got along. <laughs> I think <laughs> we got along. We spent more time just talking about music and recording and, and all that. And at the end of the interview, he we goes, well, I think I'm a good judge of character. When can you start? And I was like, I'll start right now.
0: What's your advice around that then? Is it just to go in, be friendly, have a personality, try and you know, get them away from the interview questions if you can and show who you truly are?
1: Absolutely. That's the key, isn't it? You know, just be you. nerves are always going to come into play, but, you know, as long as you can just be open and honest and transparent and, you know, and just converse, engage in conversation with the person and listen, sit there and listen to their questions. And, you know, like you've just kind of, you've got to be you, you know, and have a common interest. Like, obviously if you're passionate about that, that role and where you want to go, then engage with them on, on that. You know, for me, I was really fortunate because not only was it a career path I wanted to take, but it was my, hobby and my all in everything. So I was so obsessed with how the Beatles recorded on these particular Altec preamps that they had in the studio. So, you know, I saw these things and I was able to just go, Oh, is that a da 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 And then, you know, we're able to kind of bounce back and forth a bit from there. So.
0: All right. So day one, you're a young, eager assistant engineer. What do you do?
1: What did I do? Actually, you know what? I think it was like day one or day two. I think we had John Butler come through at that time. So that studio was renowned for, um, doing a lots of blues and roots at the time. So we'd done the Sunrise Oversea album for, for John Butler. It was like Blue King Brown, The Cat Empire. Anybody who was anybody had come through. I do remember, so oh, just to back up that, studio is actually owned by Joe Camilleri, who was from the Black Sorrows, a very famous artist from the 70s and 80s. And uh, Joe was in the 70s and then 80s and 90s at um, the Black Sorrows. So he owned the studio, but there was a studio manager so we would have all sorts of Australian music heroes come through the doors. And I just remember that first week, it was crazy. It was like, we had John Butler. I think I had Pete Murray. I think I had Paul Kelly or somebody. It was like somebody after somebody every day. So I was completely starstruck, um, you know, one after another. I hadn't met so many uh, famous people. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, play cool, play cool. <laughs>
0: So, at this point, you know when you've got acts like that coming through, you don't want someone who is is a bit green, so were you more just observing what everyone or the other technicians and um engineers were doing, or were you hands on?
1: Absolutely, no. I remember the phrase, "Make like a plant and put yourself in the corner," and i I remember just doing that and sitting there and not saying anything and just watching and you know, I mean, that's a bit of the studio culture as well. Is that you know, an assistant engineer should be seen and not heard. And I think that mentality is starting to change a little bit now. But and I've seen it before with engineers or assistant engineers that would be in session and would just pipe up and have an opinion and go, "Oh, I don't think I like that take." And it's like, "Hang on a minute, no, <laughs>
0: who the hell are you?" Uh,
1: maybe don't. Yeah, maybe let's just keep it between the artist and the and the producer and engineer in the in the hot seat. You know. So I I really I worked that out very quickly that watch and observe and learn and, you know, only if there was an opportunity, pull the engineer aside and say, hey, what, what was that mic technique you did on that or what did you do there with the artist here and there? And, you know, but the big thing was just like pleasantries for the artist, can I get you a coffee? Can I go and get you some lunch?
0: So what were you learning during this stage?
1: So much, so much. Just watching the uh, the engineers operate and, you know, really honing in on how he would pull sounds together. And and you can really do that because, you know, there's so much feedback from, you know, obviously what you're listening to through the speakers and what he would go for. And trying to put that into perspective of what I'd learned, because there's obviously, I suppose, with engineering, it's, there is a technical element to it and you, you study, you know, signal chain and process and, and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's, it is a creative process you know and you'll come to a sound how you'll come to it so every engineer that would come through or producer or even artist would just have a different approach they would go about pulling up a sound this way and what you thought was right would be completely wrong that they would go for, and then they would get this sound and go oh my god that's so so cool I remember just kind of sitting there using it as my toolbox and I was so fortunate to have so many different great producers and engineers that come through and I'd go I like that trick well, I don't really like that. But, you know, and you would kind of start to pick and choose these little techniques and I'd stuff them into my toolbox. And then what I would do, this is the big thing, was then the session would end, you know, and some of these sessions would go for 12, 13, 14, 15 hours, right? Massive sessions. Because everyone was trying to condense as much as they can into one day. After the session, I would stay on and I would just once they've all walked away because everything back then was all analog right nothing was digital so we had this big mixing desk and all this kind of outboard gear and, and I would sit there and I'd go you know this is when they were done of
0: course I wouldn't fiddle with it if we were midway through the session but it had all been saved and locked away
1: yeah, yeah and it was all changed <laughs> in the morning I'd change it but I was like I needed to have a, you know an understanding of what that bit of gear would do and how this sounds and you know et etc cetera, et cetera. so I would go through and put you know a kick drum through this compressor and and i'd put it all the way through as hard as it could and it would distort and i'd go okay so that sounds like that and then this would do this and that and that so i would just learn you know i would take those tricks from the day or you know that session and look at what that engineer was doing and then kind of find my own way that way And, and so i spent years just trying to find my own in in that sense
0: yeah, it's it's really interesting because like, you know, kids or students who go into their first job would be there until they've got enough experience to move on and to go to a better job. You were at Woodstock Studios for six years. So what kept you there so long?
1: I'd end up kind of migrating out of being an um, assistant engineer into being a, a lead engineer as well. So there was a couple of head engineers there as well. We ended up acquiring another studio just down the road on Williams Street. To which I ended up running that studio over there for for a little while. So, yeah, that was really good. Like I, quite early on, I started to get you know a lot of demo bands or some other um, smaller acts that couldn't afford the really big expensive hotshot <laughs> producer, and I'd just start to kind of sink my teeth into it that way. So, and I was working with so many so many acts back then, so many different bands, and just it would be like an EP or an album once a week, you know, it was so that was really busy. So that kind of catapulted me really quickly, whereas in the bigger commercial studios, assistant engineers would be sitting in that position a lot longer. But I think because Woodstock was a bit of a smaller boutique studio, I tended to progress a little quicker.
0: You made the bold move, brave move, if you will, uh, to jump out of that and get into freelance work. Why?
1: There was a big shift from Obviously, the large format recording studio where it was analogue, where there was more accessibility for artists to be able to create at home, right? That was that shift that was happening as I'd started in, in the studio. People could buy a small interface and obviously have a computer and we'd be able to create at home. So that was to the big detriment of the large recording format studios, you know. So we had started to take a little bit of a hit back then. There would be months where it would be you know, super busy and then you would have a month of absolutely nothing at all. It's just too much vulnerability. Earnings were going up and down all over the place. So I was like, right, I need something else that's going to help buffer that a little bit more. And that's when I decided to do a little bit more live work. And I'd got an opportunity to do some like in-house mixing at the at Espy the Hotel, the Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda. And so I kind of jumped into there and started to do a little bit more two or three nights a week of, of live mixing there.
0: So what preparation goes into putting a, a live concert or a live gig on?
1: There's a lot. It's really different to studio recording, obviously. It's a, it's a one-shot opportunity. You don't get to hit stop halfway through and go for that take again. You know? So there's a lot more um, anxiety, a little bit more stress involved around that. You know, there's a lot of setup required. The mixing process is, is quite different. There's a whole different set of tools that you have to become familiarised yourself with, with mixing consoles and microphones and feedback. You'll have monitors, so you'll have, um, you know, artists will have their own mix on stage. So you've got to kind of find this balance of of doing the the two. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot involved. It's quite vastly different, but a lot more fun because you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants a lot more, you know.
0: Uh, I mean, if you go to YouTube and you type in gig fails, you'll see a number of videos where things don't go right on stage. And I'm sure you've had a few experiences before. What were some of them?
1: Well, I mean, mean, here's the most interesting thing is, what am I, nearly 17 years, 18 years into this business, and you think that all of those things can be behind you. Well, no, no, no. You can still have epic fails. Okay, a great example was literally the gig gig last week in Mexico, we did, um, ironically that we did a festival called the Corona Capital in Mexico. On point. On, oh, very on point, very relevant. Uh, it's the biggest music festival in Mexico city and Rufus were headlining, um, that with, it was us and 21 Pilots. And, uh, so we we're on this massive stage. We, I think we had 45, 50,000 people there and because it was Mexico, we have, um, A and B rigs. So because... Just logistically, you know, show's so big that we've got to freight things in different directions. So this was basically what we call a walking gig. So it was a mixing console that wasn't my own, that I was kind of walking into it for, for a first time. And so I'd had a show file that I hadn't used before. Well, I had, I'd worked on it offline, but this was the first time I was hearing it in kind of situ. And I remember getting the kick drum and I was playing around because everything's on a mouse now because there's plugins and, and I've got this kick drum and I literally had the mouse and I was trying to adjust the level of it, and it was, like, very minute, you know. And I hit it, and I just... It was one of those trackball (laughs) mouses, and I must have just gone with my finger, and it had put the kick drum to plus 10, 15 dB of game, which is, you know, like a normal show, would be at 105 dB decibels, right? It's loud. It was so loud. And, I mean, I'm talking, you know, 50,000 people, so the, the PA system was... Huge! It was an in, incredibly big system to be able to hit all of those people, and it went kaboom through the system. <laughs> to which and I caught it very quickly. I went, ah oh, no, <laughs> and I um, got okay, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it, and I laughed because I was like, you know, there you go, complete operator, complete fail. There, nearly deafened everybody.
0: <laughs> Does the band come off stage and just give you that glare that says?
1: Don't ever do that again. Nah, I don't think they knew what was going on. The tour manager certainly did, and I remember him screaming at our um, at the other text hand then going, what was that? Because I could hear it from stage. And uh, I was just like, operator error, you know, this this numpty over here. But, yeah, you know, like, those things, those things are going to happen, right? And, you know, I mean, that was a bit of an accident really, but a little bit probably silly on my behalf, not thinking straight, but, you know, there's always epic fails. You know, we've had other instances where, I've had the um, mixing console completely die on me and crash, and we had to cancel the show, and so that was really stressful because obviously these gigs are very expensive to put on, and you know, so you're always challenged, but you know, it's part of the fun.
0: You are literally touring with bands all over the world now. That's an amazing opportunity for you. How did you get to that level? I and mean, you have to be skilled. That's a given, but there's got to be something else at play.
1: There is a big part of it is luck. And I I don't know, I think about this a lot. I was like, you know, is it right place, right time? I had to play that card. You know, I feel like I've worked really hard for it as well, but opportunity will find itself in all kinds of places, you know. I was obviously mixing a lot of bands in Melbourne, and so I, I suppose the stepping stone to this was, you know, it obviously didn't catapult straight into international touring. I was mixing lots of independent small bands and... I was just, you know, you'd have to network. You've always got to kind of network and get to know the bands and opportunity just fed that way. So I would, I was mixing a few local bands that that turned into them going, hey, we're doing a show in Sydney. Can you fly up to Sydney for the weekend? I was like, oh, cool, we'll go do a Sydney show. And then that would turn into a national tour. And then, I don't know, from there, you know, bigger shows would start to get bigger and then the acts would start to step up from there. I started working for a band called Alpine at the time who had an opportunity to, to play South by Southwest in Austin and over here in the U.S. And so that was my first international tour. So I'd obviously been touring Australia for quite a while, then working with a lot of different bands from Stonefield to Delta Rigs and a, a myriad of others. And we were doing a lot of big um, support slots for, you know, supporting the Foo Fighters and Kasabian and Kaiser Chiefs and so many big, big, big acts. But that was my first time, first opportunity to actually go with a band overseas. and um we'd gone and done that and come back and that started to open up the door a little bit more from there.
0: How can the next generation coming through put themselves in a similar position? because that's a, a very enviable career that you've got, and I would imagine a lot of listeners would like to be in a similar position at some point.
1: I think you know the only way is to networking and just find that band or find that group of bands, you know, I even say this for up-and-coming acts, you know, they're always like, what's the secret Secret source?" you know? <laughs> Obviously working with a really successful band, and the, the key is just, it's just cliche, it's just, I keep harping on about it, but it's hard work and persistence, right? So, you know, work with a band like Rufus, they just keep touring, they just keep persisting and keep going back to the same city. and they'll do a 100 cap room. And the next time they go there, it's 500 people and then 1000 and then 20,000, 50,000, whatever, you know, I think, you know, for somebody that wants to pursue a career like this is obviously get your technical skills up, obviously find that in education and get hands on, you know, apply that you've got to be able to apply that and just say yes to everything. That's what I was finding myself doing was just saying yes to every single gig that I could do. And then you know, my lecturer at the time saying, hey, do you just want to come down and help plug in a microphone? You know, so it seems like the most boring, mundane thing, but it would just put me there because then I would meet the support band for the headline band and then they would be like, oh, do you you an engineer? Hey, we've got this show, show in Wollongong. Do you want to come and mix that? It's like, yes, I'll do it, you know, I'll do it for 40 bucks. I don't care. I'll just, it wasn't about the money. It was about the experience, you know. So that's the key. One thing will lead to the other, you
0: know. Gigs don't come together without teamwork, uh, and you've been front and centre of that. So what makes good teams work for you?
1: Yeah, team is absolutely everything. Case in point is is Rufus. We're a very core team, you know, and I've been touring with these guys now for nearly nine years. I mean, we're like a family, we're that, we're that close. So learning to work together cooperatively is key, and that's the only reason that I've stayed with them, you know, like, obviously technical prowess aside, it's it's all about that relationship and how you build that and how you coexist. And you've got to treat it like a family. That's, that's how we do. I spend more time with that band and crew than anybody, than my children and my partner, than absolutely anybody else. Cause we are on the road 24 seven. We're on a bus together. We're on a plane together. We're in the next hotel, you know, <laughs> it's just constant. So group dynamics, the psychology of that, understanding people and temperaments and and all of that is absolutely key. A show like Rufus has now grown from a core group of three crew and three band to now, we're now touring 50 to 60 people. It's like, it's a small army now. And, you know, and so I suppose that dynamic changes even more because you've got different departments, you know, there's a videos department and lighting department and audio departments and, and everything. So yeah, you just need to learn to, To work in with those and be cooperative, be proactive, listen when you need to, you know.
0: I'd assume there'd be some sort of process like team meetings a couple of times before a gig or how does it all sort of come together?
1: Absolutely. We obviously have a lot of meetings. We have a lot of yeah internal chats going as well. Uh, And then we'll have, yeah, specific heads for each department, which will kind of meet and look, you know, because obviously with, with live touring, there's so many moving parts, so much logistics. You know, we're currently touring eight semi-trucks that are going around the country trying to put this show on, you know. So there's so many moving parts around that. So the only way to do that is just to converse and have open dialogue and uh, have those meetings and kind of go about it that way.
0: All right. What's the future of the industry, mate?
1: I think it's looking stronger than it ever has. You know, as gigs come back online and as we get over this pandemic, it is going to be busier than ever. It'll be a wave of events because people just want to return back to normal life.
0: Those kids coming through that are currently studying, what's your advice on them coming in and making an impact in your industry?
1: You know, like I was saying earlier, they they just need to get hands on with it. You know, obviously in in audio engineering, you know, it's a creative pursuit at the the end of the day, you know, and I think a a lot of Students, a lot of kids, or a lot of people kind of coming through can get caught up in a lot of do's and don'ts on YouTube because there's so many tutorials now of, like, you got to do things this way and you've got to do things that way or you want to get this kick, kick sound, you've got to do these five things. You know, I, I'm such a big advocate for just make that discovery yourself. I honestly think some of the greatest sounding productions that are coming out at the moment are of bedroom producers, which is literally people just at home playing around with sounds and pushing the boundaries of... Or the sonic capacity of sound design and music composition and all of that. So, you know, my, my advice would be just explore, explore, bury your head into music, bury your head into the, the technology of it. The technical side is forever evolving, and that is definitely for studio and for live. And never before have we seen such a mash of the two worlds. You know, I came from an analogue studio, analogue mixing. Now it's all digital, and never has there been a time where the studio world and the live world are now the same thing. I can take a lot of the same applications from the studio and apply it to live. You know, and that technology is forever evolving and developing. So, you know, being at the at the edge of that and the forefront of that is is definitely the key as well.
0: Now, Cam, finally, after all the questions that I've asked you, the one that I really want to know an answer to is: Does what happens on tour stay on tour? <laughs>
1: Uh, They'll say that, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. No, we never, never, never. You got nothing for us? us. Come on.
0: No one's listening. It's just you and I. (laughs) I'll take that as a yes. (laughs) (laughs) Cam, thanks very much for your time. It's uh, great to hear that you're kicking some major goals over in in the US and it's just an extension of the hard work you've put in throughout all of your career and you truly deserve it. So thanks for your, your time.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks
0: for having me on. It's exciting to hear that Cam believes the future of the music industry, especially live gigs, is looking better than it ever has. And the next generation of sound engineers, music producers and tour managers have a really big opportunity in front of them. As Cam says, the best way to do it is to get hands-on experience and get involved now. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, Assault Studios production.